most fascinating stories in the Bible is the conversion of a prejudiced Jew named Saul of Tarsus into the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. Not only is it a fascinating story, it is one of the most powerful pieces of evidence there is for the validity of Christianity. I think of two men who taught at Oxford named Lord Littleton and Benjamin Gilbert West. They wanted to destroy Christianity. To do that, they knew they had to refute two things. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. Lord Littleton took the conversion of Saul and Benjamin Gilbert West took the resurrection of Jesus. They each went their separate ways to do their research to disprove those events. In the process, each independently became followers of Jesus Christ. That's how powerful of a testimony Paul's testimony is. His conversion is actually presented three times in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. In addition, he also gives an internal perspective of his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, where he tells what went on in his heart and mind when he was confronted with the reality of Christ and his righteousness. I want us to look at Paul's conversion in Acts 9 by way of introduction to our text in Galatians chapter 1. So turn with me to begin with to Acts chapter 9, the fifth book of the New Testament after the four Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, then Acts chapter 9. Dr. Luke, who was the human author of this book, opens chapter 9 with these words, then Saul, of course that's the same man of whom we are referring, eventually known as the Apostle Paul, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This chapter records the miraculous conversion of Saul of Tarsus. It is such an important event that, as I mentioned a moment ago, it is recorded three times in the book of Acts. The actual event is recorded here in chapter 9, and Saul himself tells about it in chapter 22 and chapter 26. It is difficult for us to grasp the significance of this event. Do you realize that if it weren't for this event, we would not have half the books we have in 
our New Testament. God used this man to write half the books of the New Testament. We know him by the name Paul, which was his Roman name. The name his parents gave him was the Jewish name Saul, named after the first king of Israel. Some people mistakenly believe that Saul was his name before he was a Christian, but the Lord changed his name to Paul, sort of like what the Lord did with Peter by changing his name, but that's not the case with Paul. Saul was his Jewish name, but since he was the apostle to the Gentiles and he traveled in the Roman world, he eventually ended up going by his Roman name, Paul. He was trained at the feet of the great teacher Gamaliel. The Talmud called Gamaliel, Rabban Gamaliel the Elder. By the way, that word Rabban is not the same as the word rabbi, a very common word to us even in English. The term Rabban was reserved for the seven most eminent teachers of Israel, and Gamaliel was the first to get that title. He was the grandson of the great Hillel. He was called the beauty of the law. So Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, had tremendous respect, and that is seen by the way he was viewed even after he died. The Mishnah had this statement, quote, Since Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, there has been no more reverence for the law, and purity and abstinence died out at the same time, end quote. Acts 22.3 says, Paul studied under that man. But he was eventually brought under the tutelage of someone far greater than Gamaliel. Paul became a disciple or a student of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He expands on that point in our text in Galatians chapter 1. So let's turn there to Galatians chapter 1 as we resume our study through this letter penned by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 1, please follow along as I read verses 6 through 17, though our text will actually begin in verse 10. But I want to begin reading in verse 6, where Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. 
But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through his grace to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. As you can see from reading through these verses, Paul becomes very personal in this section of his letter to the Galatians. He does this because the group that was troubling the Galatians was seeking to discredit Paul and his message. Paul's message was that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But a group called the Judaizers came along and said that salvation also involves keeping the law of Moses from the Old Testament. Now, they could sound very convincing because they could say that their message came right out of the Word of God as revealed in Hebrew Scripture. Remember, there was no New Testament at this point. So Paul couldn't turn to the book of Romans or the book of Ephesians or Philippians or or Titus to prove his point. Therefore, it is very likely that the Judaizers accused Paul of simply making up his gospel message. That's why Paul wrote this section of his letter. He wanted to make it clear that the gospel which was being propagated by the Judaizers was no gospel at all, and that his message wasn't one that was invented. It was given to him directly by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's gospel was not a human gospel. He didn't receive it from man, and he wasn't taught it by man. He didn't even receive it from an angel. He received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. So after denouncing the supposed gospel that was being propagated by the Judaizers, which is what he does in verses 7 through 9, Paul explains that he got his message through divine revelation from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he says in verse 10, For do I now persuade men, or some of your translations, am I now seeking to please men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul's point here in this verse is, is that he did not create a gospel message to be popular with people. That's probably what the Judaizers were saying. I can just hear them saying, listen, Paul's message of salvation is too easy. He says it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is such a popular message because it doesn't involve any effort or any work. Paul just made that up to be popular with people because people like an easy message of salvation. That's the kind of thing the Judaizers were saying. To counter those accusations, Paul wrote this verse. He says, listen, I'm not trying to please people. I simply want to please God. I haven't softened my message to be popular with people. I haven't concocted or created a gospel to be popular with people. If that were my goal, I shouldn't consider myself a bondservant of Christ. 
Paul saw himself as a bondservant of Christ, which means he was a willing slave. As such, his only goal in life was to please Christ. Therefore, to suggest that he invented an easy message of salvation to be popular with people was a baseless accusation. Nevertheless, it was one that Paul felt he needed to address in some detail. And that's what he does in the following verses. He says in verse 11, But I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. In other words, it, it, is, it wasn't of human origin. Paul didn't get his gospel from any man, and he didn't make it up himself. It wasn't human. Now again, keep in mind, that's probably what the Judaizers were saying about Paul. They were accusing him of inventing or uh, concocting a gospel message that would be really popular with people because of how easy it was or how simple it was. But if you stop to think about it, the opposite is really true. Think about this. If Paul had invented his salvation message, it would have actually been characterized by works and human effort. That's what all false religions and human religions are filled with. Every other religion in the world, except for biblical Christianity, is characterized by works, salvation, and human effort. That's even true of much of Christianity, which is why I specifically used the phrase in the last sentence, biblical Christianity. Mark it well. Whenever man makes up a religion or whenever Satan spawns a religion, you can guarantee it will have some kind of works, salvation, and human effort at the core. And the reason why that is the case is because Satan promotes works salvation to deceive people, and man promotes works salvation because of pride. People want to take credit for their salvation, or at least partial credit. They want to feel like they have contributed in some way. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, strips us of our pride, strips us of our human works and our self-effort. So if the Judaizers were right, which they weren't, but if they were right to say that Paul invented a gospel message, it would not have been salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It would have been like the message of the Judaizers who said salvation is by faith in Christ plus Obedience to the law of Moses. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus circumcision if you're a man. It's always the plus that's the key. There are many churches within Christianity or Christendom that say salvation is by faith in Christ. But they also add a plus. Salvation is by faith in Christ plus baptism. Salvation is by faith in Christ, plus church membership. Salvation is by faith in Christ, plus the sacraments. Salvation is by faith in Christ, plus, and you fill in the blank. That's actually the popular message with people because they want to feel like they have contributed to their salvation in some way, but the true gospel strips us 
of our pride. There is no plus. There is no human effort. There there are no human works or religious works. The true gospel is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that is the gospel that Paul received from Jesus Christ himself. And so he says in verse 12, For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul got his message from Jesus Christ. Verse 12 is really a stunning statement. Paul, as you know, wasn't one of the original 12 disciples who followed Jesus around and heard him teach. He was a latecomer in a sense. In 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he refers to himself as one born out of due time. In other words, his timing was off in the sense that he, he was a genuine apostle, but he didn't become one until after Jesus was gone. He didn't get to hear Jesus teach. Yet here, Paul says that he received his gospel message from Jesus. Paul didn't receive his message from other men. He wasn't taught it by other men. He got it from Jesus, which raises the question, how in the world did he get it from Jesus if Jesus was already gone from the scene when Paul became an apostle? Here in this verse, he asserts that he received it through direct revelation, direct communication from Jesus. Jesus revealed the gospel to Paul after Jesus had already gone back into heaven. Jesus appeared to Paul, as we saw in Acts 9, to transform him. And Jesus gave Paul the message that was to be proclaimed throughout the world. That was the gospel message Paul proclaimed. So Paul didn't invent it. He he didn't create it. He did not concoct it. He didn't get it from man. He, He wasn't taught it from man. Paul's gospel message came directly from Jesus Christ himself. And Paul received that message after he had spent time trying to destroy it earlier in his life. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. This is what we saw earlier in Acts 9. Acts 9.1 says Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was so serious about destroying the early church that he wasn't content to persecute Christians in Jerusalem or even in Israel. He even pursued Christians all the way north to Damascus, which was about 160 miles north of Jerusalem. He was a brutal, unmerciful man. He was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. The word picture that Luke presents in Acts 9-1 is not so much that Saul was breathing out threats and murder, It's more the idea that he was breathing in threats and murder. We use a figure of speech very similar to this. If someone is an avid baseball fan, we say he eats and breathes baseball. In other words, that's what he lives for. That's what Luke is saying in Acts 9-1. Paul's life was persecuting Christians. 
That's what he lived for. That's what drove him. That was his one passion. Acts 8, 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. That verse shows how devoted to persecution Saul really was. He went house to house, dragging off Christians. The phrase made havoc literally means he exercised brutal and sadistic cruelty. The word was used of a wild boar ravaging a vineyard and an animal savagely tearing a body apart. Paul was ruthless against Christians. And the verse tells us there in Acts 8, he made no exception for women. So when he's dragging off Christians, you need to picture him dragging women by the hair out of the house to put them in prison. That's how much hatred and rage he had. To really catch the impact of that scene, we have to put out of our minds the great love and respect we have for the Apostle Paul from what we know of the rest of the New Testament. At one point in his life, he was a vicious man. After he became a Christian, he gave other descriptions of what he had done. For example, go back to the book of Acts and look at chapter 22 for just a second. Acts chapter 22 <coughs> This is Paul giving his testimony to the Jewish people on one occasion. And notice what he says about himself in Acts 22, verse 17. He says, verse 17, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance, and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So Jesus here on this occasion tells Paul, you need to get out of town. You're, you're going to get it. But Paul disagrees. He thinks, no, no, no. I, I, what a great testimony I have. What a great story. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. So Paul says, no, Lord, I don't think it's gonna, they're going to reject me. Of course, in the next verse, then Jesus said, depart. I know what I'm talking about here, Paul. You need to get out of town. But what I want you to notice is that in that brief description, Paul reveals the fact that he not only imprisoned Christians, he beat them. He states that here. And then look at chapter 26, just a, a few chapters to the right. This is Paul giving his testimony to King Agrippa. Chapter 26, verse 9. He says, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. <clears throat> Paul was so serious about stamping out Christianity that he even pursued Christians to foreign cities. And his statement in verse 11 probably indicates 
that he actually tortured Christians to get them to denounce Jesus and blaspheme him. We don't realize just how much this man was feared by first century Christians. He was the last man you would have thought would become a Christian. So don't give up hope and don't stop praying for that person you think will never come to the Lord. Anytime someone is saved, it's a miraculous work of God. So saving one person isn't any harder for God than saving another. Paul is the perfect example. Now back to Galatians chapter 1. This is what Paul is referring to in Galatians 1 verse 13 when he says he persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And he says in verse 14, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. If anyone was serious about and committed to destroying those who believed the gospel, it was Paul. There were many Jews in the first century who did not like the disciples of Jesus, but they did not translate their dislike into action. Paul did. He proved his zeal by his actions of pursuing and persecuting the followers of Jesus. And beloved, remember this. Think about this. Most of the believers in Jesus at that time were Jewish. There were hardly any Gentile believers yet. So that means that Paul was viciously persecuting his own Jewish kinsmen. He considered Jewish people who believed in Jesus to be traitors to their people, traitors to their religion, traitors to their heritage. He was exceedingly protective of Judaism, which was his motivation for hating believers in Jesus. That was his course. That was his life. That was his path. But it all changed when Jesus intercepted him in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus. That's when God changed Saul's life forever. He says in verse 15, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. This verse reminds us that there's a sense in which God had His hand on Saul's life from birth. Now, I'm not implying that Saul was saved or was a child of God from birth, because like all of us, he was a sinner by birth, by nature, by choice, and by practice. But even as an unsaved man... God was preparing Paul for his eventual calling in life. God was using Paul's upbringing and his training and his life's experiences to shape him and mold him and equip him for his role as the apostle to the Gentiles. God was using all that to prepare Paul to be a messenger of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But to be that messenger, he first had to be transformed by the grace of God. And that's what happened to him on the road to Damascus. Paul described that transformation here in this verse as being called through grace or called by grace. Think about it this way. Paul was called by grace to be a proclaimer of grace. When Paul uses the term called here in this verse, he's not simply 
talking about an invitation. He's talking about an effectual or efficacious call to salvation. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Romans 8.30 says, Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So the kind, of Paul, uh, the kind of call that Paul is talking about in these passages is not merely an invitation to salvation, but rather an effective call to salvation. We saw this earlier in Acts 9. Jesus didn't merely invite Saul to be saved. It wasn't much of an invitation to be knocked to the ground, blinded, knocked from your animal or whatever. Jesus knocked him to the ground and transformed his heart. That's the effectual call of salvation. And Paul says here that call is by grace. It's not based on anyone's worthiness or deservedness or works. It's all the grace of God. Paul was called by grace to be a proclaimer of grace. God had a specific reason for calling Paul. And he says in verse 16, here's the reason. To reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles. And when this happened, I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood. God extended saving grace to Paul to use Paul as an instrument of grace to display Christ. Do you remember this story? When Paul was first saved, a man by the name of Ananias was supposed to reach out to him. But the man was understandably hesitant in light of Paul's reputation as such a fierce persecutor's, persecutor of believers. And so he said this, Lord, when the Lord told him, Ananias, you need to reach out to, to Saul. He said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here in Damascus, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. In other words, Lord, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to be the guy? Acts 9.15 records the Lord's response. Here it is. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. That was Paul's unique mission. He was transformed to be a trophy of grace, as is the case for all of us. But he had a specialized focus toward the Gentile people, even though he was a Jew. Paul was called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. I don't know how much you think about this kind of thing or how much you think about this fact, but it's interesting to realize, let me say it this way, that the Lord saved Paul to be our apostle. That's right. The Lord saved Paul to be our apostle. Almost everyone in this room, if not everyone, is a Gentile. In the words of Ephesians 2, we were strangers and foreigners and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise. Jesus himself said that he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's not us. 
He chose 12 disciples to be ambassadors to the people of Israel. He promised them in Matthew 19 that in the kingdom they will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. That's not us. So as Gentiles, it would be easy for us to feel like outsiders because we were outsiders. But Ephesians 2 tells us that in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. We've been brought into the family of God. And not only that, think about this. God not only saved us, brought us into the family of God, God even gave us an apostle to minister specifically to us. His name was Paul. The Lord saved Paul to be our apostle. And that's one of the reasons why so many of us are drawn to the life and letters of Paul. Think about how the Lord has ministered (coughs) to your heart through Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon. All those letters were written by our apostle, Paul. The Lord specifically appointed Paul as the apostle to the Gentiles. And when that happened, Paul did not need to get approval or commissioning or sanctioning from men, even the other apostles. He didn't need to get their approval. That's, what he, that's why he says here in verse 16 that when the Lord called him, he did not confer with flesh and blood. And in verse 17 he says, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. When Paul was saved and commissioned by the Lord, he didn't go to Jerusalem to be affirmed. He didn't go to Jerusalem to be instructed, to find out what he needed to teach. He didn't go there to get anything from the other apostles. And his point in saying this was not to put down the other apostles. He loved and respected those men. But he was wanting to emphasize that he didn't get his gospel message from men, even from the other apostles. He got it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He didn't go to Jerusalem to learn what to preach. He didn't go to Jerusalem and sit down with Peter, James, and John and say, Hey guys, fill me in here. He wasn't instructed by the other apostles. He was instructed by the Lord Jesus during his time in Arabia. Jesus gave Paul his message. Jesus gave Paul his doctrine. Jesus gave Paul his theology. Jesus gave Paul his gospel. And once Paul was ready to begin proclaiming that message, he went back to Damascus and began ministering there. He didn't go to Jerusalem to the other apostles to make sure that he had things right, that he had the right gospel message, because he didn't need to get confirmation from those godly men. He knew that his gospel was not a human gospel because he had received it directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. And what was Paul's gospel message? It was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To see it stated succinctly, let's turn to Romans 4 in closing this morning. Go back just a 
few letters to Romans chapter 4 where Paul delineates his gospel. The book of Romans, as you probably know, is Paul's delineation of the gospel. It is his most thorough explanation of the gospel. But in chapter 4 here, verses 4 and 5, we have a great summary statement where Paul sums up in a powerful way what his gospel was. If we want to know what he's talking about in Galatians that, that he received from the Lord Jesus, here it is. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. Now to him who works, he's not talking about, you know, a job. He's talking about working for salvation, working in an attempt to gain salvation. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. He's using an analogy. If you do your job, whatever your job happens to be, if you're a plumber or you're a welder or you're a secretary or whatever, you do your work, you get paid. It's, hey, you do your work, you get paid, you get compensated. That's just the way things operate. So to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. You're owed the money because you did the work. But salvation doesn't work that way. Verse 5, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Please notice that. What are we when we are justified? Ungodly. Jesus doesn't make us godly and then justify us. God doesn't make us, make us good people and then justify us. The verse is clear. To him who does not work, that is, does not work for his salvation, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. You see, justification does not come to those who work for it. Salvation comes to those who place faith in the Lord. And that is why we say that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by grace, through faith, in Christ, plus something. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was Paul's gospel. And it is by no means a human gospel. It is the gospel given to him directly by Jesus Christ. It's the only gospel that saves. So listen, if you're believing any other gospel, and I put the word gospel in quotes, any other message of salvation, you're believing the wrong message. If you're believing you can do anything to contribute to your salvation or get merit or gain your salvation, you're believing the wrong message. The gospel that Paul received directly from Jesus was salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Have you embraced that gospel? It's the only gospel that saves. Let's bow together as we close this morning. And as you bow your head and close your eyes, just to reflect on what you've seen from God's Word this morning, I ask you again, have you believed, have you, have you embraced that gospel? Not the other gospel messages that float around in religion and float around in our society. You know, God helps those who help themselves type of gospel. If you just do what you can, then God will make up the difference and you'll be saved. That's not the gospel. We can do nothing. To him who does not work 
but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Have you, like Paul, relinquished or let go of all of your own self-effort and human achievement in relation to salvation and put your faith solely and exclusively in Christ? If not, you're believing the wrong thing. You're believing a message that doesn't save. So let go of anything you're holding on to for salvation. And in its place, embrace one thing, Christ. Christ and Christ alone. Turn to him today. Call out to him today. Because Paul says later in Romans, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So call on him. Father, thank you that the gospel strips us of our pride. It strips us of our own human achievement, our own self-effort, our own religious works and deeds. And it brings us down to trusting in one thing, your son Jesus Christ. What a glorious gospel that is. What a powerful gospel that is. And what an important gospel that is to be proclaimed. Because just like the first century, our world is filled with religions and churches that teach other gospels, other supposed paths of salvation. May we hold tightly, firmly, exclusively to what your word teaches, to to what your son, the Lord Jesus, revealed directly to Paul to be proclaimed as the gospel. And without apology, may we stand on salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in closing, we pray for anyone here among us who has not embraced that gospel message, for anyone who has either rejected it, not wanting it, or maybe tried to substitute it for another gospel involving human effort and religion and works. Specifically, we pray for anyone here among us who is still lost, still condemned in their sin, that they would turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and call on him today, claiming the promise that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. May your spirit draw them to that point this day to call on the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray, amen.